Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall and on this edition of the podcast we'll look at the story which has dominated headlines this week, the unfolding situation in Afghanistan. We've spoken to Afghans living in Scotland, a former soldier who served in the country and Douglas Alexander, a former Secretary of State for International Development. But first I'm joined by my colleague Andrew Learmans to discuss what has been an extraordinary week. Andrew, it, uh, the speed of the Taliban advance, which uh, has been particularly shocking to everyone watching yeah. on. Absolutely, Chris. You know, when Donald Trump signed his peace deal with the Taliban back in uh, February last year, you know, a deal that ultimately led to the US pulling their troops out this summer, you know, a deal that was enthusiastically backed by Joe Biden. There was always a, a fear of a Taliban resurgence. And certainly for most of this year, we've seen the Taliban sort of flex their muscle as NATO and the Americans sort of pull out more and more. Uh, so, so last month we saw the US pull their you know, troops out um, in great numbers. Uh, and then on August 6th, the Taliban captured their first provincial capital, the, the city of Zaranjiz in, in, in southwestern Nimroz. Now, what was interesting is not long after that is you had a US defence official telling Reuters that he... Th- he thought the Taliban could isolate Kabul in 30 days and potentially take over in, in, in 90 days. Instead, they, they took it over in just 10. So it seems like there's been a real intelligence failure here. Yeah, and it's been a huge, uh, I mean, there's been a huge fallout in UK politics. Parliament was recalled uh, for a special debate on the situation on Wednesday. And it's fair to say uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab faced criticism from across the House, including from, from those in their own party. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of unhappiness in the Commons yesterday. I think, you know, um, we saw uh, the the, um, former Prime Minister, Theresa May, sort of laying into Boris Johnson, saying it was incomprehensible that the UK was not doing more, that the UK was not uh, still in Afghanistan. You had a a number of um, uh, veterans uh, making speeches as well, sort of criticising the the government for for effectively abandoning the people of Afghanistan. I think, you know, uh, one of the, the... the standout moments of that debate. Um, and one of those speeches I think will, will be remembered for a long time uh, came from Tom Tukenhat, who served, Tory MP, who served in Afghanistan. Um, uh, you know, he talked about, um, you know, watching the last week, struggling through anger, grief and, and, and rage, and, you know, feeling, um, he said, the feeling of abandonment of not just a country, but the, the sacrifice that his friends made. You know, um, and indeed he saved uh, some. There was criticism of, of of the UK government. There was criticism of 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 Boris Johnson. But I think you know, his most damning criticism came for was targeted at Joe Biden. Um, you know, because Joe Biden in a speech on on Monday, you know, had had you know said that the Afghan military had had collapsed sometimes without trying to fight. Uh, you know, American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. You know, you know Tom. Tugan had described that as shameful, you know, said it was shameful that the US president was was calling into the question of the, the courage of the men I fought with. Those who have not fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have, he said. Uh, a very emotive speech. Um, I think we can hear some of it now. Like many veterans, this last week has been one that has seen me struggle through anger and grief and rage the feeling abandonment of not just a country, but the sacrifice that my friends made. I've been to funerals from Poole to Dunblane. I've watched good men go into the earth, taking with them a part of me and a part of all of us. 
And this week has torn open some of those wounds, left them raw, left us all hurting. Um, and then in another development, which is uh, uh, really interesting, and, and this is, you know, it's a, a real chance here, I think, that, that Dominic Grab, the Foreign Secretary, could ultimately lose his job over this, is that he, we found out uh, that he refused to be contacted uh, uh, about what was going on in Afghanistan last week when he was on holiday. Uh, he was on holiday in a Swiss five-star luxury hotel. Um, and, you know, uh, some government business was, was coming to his way. You know, we had to talk about the Taliban takeover and about the fate of of uh, translators, interpreters who'd worked with the British Army, and he refused to take the call because uh, he was on holiday. So now we have Labour and the SNP and other parties saying that uh, he, uh, he needs to go. Uh, he's saying he's not going, though. Yeah, I'm increasing uh, pressure on Dominic Rab. And Andrew, you've been uh, speaking to uh, two Afghans who are now living in the UK. Yeah, so earlier this week, I spoke to Abdul uh, Bastani, uh, who is a director of Glasgow Afghan United. Uh, he's also uh, involved in Scottish politics a little bit. He, he stood for the SNP in their recent council by-election. Uh, he's been in Glasgow for the last 20 years. I also spoke to... Uh, May uh, Azizi, May Amazizi, uh, who is uh, a campaigner um, who has been here most of her life uh, and um, she's involved with the Masood Foundation. I start off by asking them, they both still have family in the in Afghanistan, in the north of the country, and I, I started off by asking them how their families were getting on and, and, and what's happening just now. Well, I'm doing... So you've you've still got family. You've still got quite a lot of family in, in Afghanistan at the moment. Have you heard from them? How how are things for them just now? Uh, yes, uh, I have lots of families. Particularly my mom, my bro- two brothers, sisters, their children, and we are so worried about them. They were initially living in north of Afghanistan, a city called uh, Kunduz province, and Kunduz have lots of issues and problems. Uh, fighting. My brother, were, one of my brother was in London. He went to take his family into the safety to Kabul uh, a month ago. He managed to take them to Kabul after a very difficult journey and uh, trapping in war and fight and conflict. Uh, so when he got them in Kabul, we never expected like the situation escalate so rapidly that Kabul will be taken over very quickly. There will be no forms of resistance. And now they are trapped, a kind of trap in the middle of nowhere. They are living in hide. Uh, they are so worried and we are so worried about them as well. And have you, have you spoken to them since the, the, the Taliban took Kabul? Yes, I am in uh, I'm, I'm in regular contact with them. Uh, they're hiding. Uh, they're terrified. We're terrified in here. And uh, during night, we can't have proper sleep, always thinking about them. And the fact the biggest problem started now, like Taliban knocking people's door, taking people list of names. They have list of names searching for people. They're taking people car and then, and uh, it's so difficult, so terrifying. Hmm. Who are they searching for? What names have they got? What, what's... Well, uh, they're searching for people who are member of armed forces, particularly in the special forces and the special police forces, uh, or 
any other names like people, politicians and uh, like God knows what other names have. Uh, the things is very worrying for us, like they're searching for a particular type of people, particular group of people, and this is very worrying for us. Um, it seems like a good point to bring to bring me in. And, and how are you, how are your family, um, me? How are they getting on? Um, we, we've had, I mean, everyone's pretty much in hiding right now. A lot of the girls, because they heard about the the house is going door to door, a lot of them have gone towards um, Kabul right now. Uh, they're there. There's like probably about 60, 70 people on the one roof. Everyone's hiding together. Uh, the Taliban have been going door to door to see who have weapons, who have certificates. The girls have all burnt their certificates, which is very, very sad. They've all burnt their uni degrees. They've taken their TVs down. Um, they've all gone to buy that ridiculous burqa, um, which apparently right now in Kabul is being sold for $100 each. People can't even afford $100 in a year, let alone let alone for one burqa. Um, so, they, I mean, the situation is really bad. Everyone's basically just being prepared for the for the Taliban to come home from, from door to door, which they have. They have gone to, to one of my cousin's homes. They did raid it. They took every single... Um, I, mean, I mean, they were actually searching for contractors in terms of if they worked with the US or the UK. They didn't find anything because every, everyone practically burnt everything that they had. Um, and uh, my cousin's obviously married. They didn't say anything to her at that point. But my cousin did report that the two girls from her neighbours were taken. Now, in the last few days, there's been what you could almost describe as a, a charm offensive by members of the Taliban. They've, you know, they've, they've, they've gone in a bit of a PR effort talking about freedoms for women, media and other individuals within the, the framework of Sharia law. And they're trying to win the hearts and minds of Afghanistan, Afghans, as well as the international community. You know, saying here the Taliban of 2021 is not the two not the Taliban of uh, of 2001. So I, I asked me and, and, and Bastani if they, they thought the Taliban had changed. No, no. From uh, the, the thing is, Bastani um, and I, we both have family up in the north and we know exactly what goes in there, especially in Kabul in particular. Um, just yesterday, one of my um, very, very good friends, her cousin reported that two of her neighbours, their two youngest daughters were kidnapped. Um, they've been doing that in Kunduz, they've been doing that in Herat to the point where they've gone door to door. And, and you know, this, this isn't just propaganda, this is what we know. And it's it's such a shame that people are saying that this is propaganda where, you know, it, it, it's appalling. But in Herat in particular, they went from door to door um, to see who's in the house, how many girls they have. And then they have mentioned that the, I think the third girl as long as she's from about I think 10 onwards or god knows how how old she is can be taken um pardon me as a sex slave um not only that right now they're saying to people that the that we we don't mind women you know um going to education working but that that's that's a lie because just yesterday they beat up a lady for going to say bye to her students um so we know exactly what goes on in there of course the media doesn't know everything I know BBC have covered certain things and so have the Daily Mail and a few other places in regards to the young girls being kidnapped. Um, but there, there's a lot more to happen. Um, right now, the situation isn't great. Everyone's being threatened. Members of our family are being threatened because all we've ever done is advocated for women's rights, um, in particular Northern Alliance, dare I say, because they're the ones that have always um, fought against the Taliban, the terrorist regime. So the situation is far from calm right now. I, I don't know why um, they're trying to 
you know they've got this whole innocent act going on but they've done this before there's the throughout the past 20 years we've experienced a lot you know i mean i would say it's probably been the best 20 years of afghanistan's life in terms of progressing so on and so forth however each and every time that a, a school has been bombed a girl has been raped or kidnapped or little girls in schools or little boys in school that schools that have been kidnapped are all due to the taliban so to 20 years of those incidents prove that they are not going to be calm this is only going to get far worse we don't know how many of them are going to take the identity of other afghans to get into the uk to get into america to go into germany we don't know how many potential terrorist um acts these lot will commit in these countries let alone in afghanistan that itself uh, right now of course our families are probably one of the most at risk um, they've all been warned, anyone who's worked with the US, with the UK, any contractor, any interpreter, any teacher, doctor, anything of that sort, anyone who is in relate, who's related to activists or people who own women's, women's rights like myself and, for example, Bastani Saib, who's, who's always advocated for that too, um, everyone's just at risk. This, I think this is a very, very dark time for the Afghan women in particular. Um, more so than anything for the young girls. We're, we're very, very, very concerned for the young girls. Um, there's been videos circulating around YouTube. YouTube takes them down due to the amount of reports that they get. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, I would say this is probably the darkest time in history for us. Uh, people have contacted me, contacted me through Instagram because I use my platform uh, to advocate for women's rights a lot. Uh, they've been begging, crying, sending their pictures, sending how scared they are saying, please, please try to get us out. They're going to kill us, which has been the situation in the past. And they've already been doing this. I mean, not a little, not too long ago, they killed one of our comedians. They killed our journalists. They killed our female journalists. They've tried to kill um, the singers numerous times. Bustani Saib knows this. They're, you know, they're, they're all fear of being targeted under the Taliban uh, rule right now. Uh, younger generation youth and Afghans rather dying falling from the plane instead of being hostage under the government of Taliban. They don't want to stay because they know it very clear. They know who they are. See, in Kandahar province, uh, Kandahar province, uh, over 900 people have been killed lying on the street, their bodies lying on the street. Why? Because they come from another tribe and Taliban's are uh, killing them as a matter of revenge because that particular tribe was member of uh, armed forces, police forces, therefore they are the primary target for the Taliban. And by the way, the Taliban administration said, oh, that their forces don't attack or don't touch ordinary people. We need to be very careful in here. They said ordinary people. They never said anything about a national army, or national police force, they never said a word about them because those people are the primary target or the people who work for the government, they are the target as well. Uh, so we are very concerned about uh, this situation. This could escalate further and there will be a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of bloodshed uh, coming, unfortunately, the way I could see the situation. Mm-hmm. And... and uh, so people were just sort of taken away or, or disappeared because they were from a particular area? Or, I mean, what, what sort of rules did the, the Taliban have in place? You know, at that time, like, they were shooting anyone. But at this time, 
during the night they're coming taking people out one thing we need to know very clear about the taliban who they are in the past 20 years we have seen like they were all suicide bombers car bombs bombing attacking attacking hospitals burning schools killing doctors engineers killing builders who are who are working in uh, infrastructure of the country and uh, destroying bridges, destroying roads. This is what they were doing. Uh, the most terrifying uh, moment I saw an attack in maternity hospital in Kabul, where they killed children who were just one day old, killed children who were in mom's womb and and killing uh, like all, all hundreds of innocent children who were just born, had no idea. Uh, where they are going to look so this is what the talibans are they bringing a truck bomb in the middle of the market blowing them up in shah shaheed of kabul killing hundreds and hundreds of people destroying the entire area where the like uh, destroying the entire hundreds of home of uh, ordinary people so this is what they are and and they cannot tell us like they just came uh, they have different agenda now Taliban have not got any other message to the ordinary people. Uh, their message is the violence, killing, bloodshed, revenge. And and, uh, and by the way, they belong to one particular group, 95% of them coming from one group. And they the, the other, like, we need to look at Afghanistan. We are not a country of majority. We don't have majority in Afghanistan. It's a country of minorities, right? And... You cannot have one particular group to rule the whole country and the rest no to the rest. And this is what we are. We are. Like uh, other tribes or other uh, ethnicities, uh, people from other ethnic group, or uh, their rights have been taken away from them and uh, uh, they are the primary target for them. They believe the more they kill those tribes, the more the less would be in the country, so they will govern uh, very easily. And, and that is very wrong, and, and unfortunately, this is what their message is. Andrew, the history of Afghanistan is a long and complicated one, but the most recent conflict dates back to 2001 and the attacks of 9-11. And initially, uh, the Americans went in to find um, Osama bin Laden. Yeah, so we saw the uh, US-led invasion uh, of Afghanistan uh, kicked off in October 2001. And that was after the Taliban refused to, to hand over al-Qaeda's leader, Osama bin Laden, um, who was you know blamed for the, the 9-11 attacks. So we saw in the UK and the US uh, uh, go to war in Afghanistan. It just really took a, a couple of months for the Taliban to be toppled. They've been in power since 1996. Um, and a new interim government was then, you know, formed and, and, and headed by uh, Hamid Karzai in December 2001. It's not been plain sailing over the last 20 years as uh, uh, Afghanistan has tried to, to build itself up as a democracy. There's been 20 years of conflict. We've seen 40,000 civilians killed in attacks, both by the Taliban and US-led forces. You know, at least 64,000 Afghan military and police and more than 3,500 international soldiers also killed. So it's it's um, it's been a difficult couple of decades. 
Yeah, and obviously the invasion was led by the Americans, but uh, the British were uh, willing participants. We were we were allies with the Americans uh, under the government of Tony Blair. Our colleague Mandy Rhodes has spoken to Douglas Alexander, a former International Development Secretary. He admits to being devastated by the recent events. Douglas, you were International Development Secretary at the time that we went into Afghanistan. And I guess the most obvious question and the one everybody's asking right now is, really, what was it all for? Well, I became Development Secretary in 2007, but the origins of the NATO action in Afghanistan, of course, um, rest back in 2001 when we saw al-Qaeda operating from uh, bases and with the support of the Taliban attacking the Twin Towers on uh, that terrible day of uh, uh, 9-11. What followed was internationally sanctioned action led by NATO forces, a coalition of more than 40 countries, with the objective of denying al-Qaeda the ability to continue to operate internationally from their bases within Afghanistan. And um, on that uh, specific criteria, um, it is factually correct that since 9-11, there hasn't been an internationally led a terrorist attack from Afghanistan um, outside of its borders. But the consequences of the action that was taken in 2001, um, and of which I shared responsibility when I became Development Secretary six years later in 2007, was to allow the Afghan forces to step up as the international forces stepped back. The judgment was that unless there was a viable government, not just in Kabul, but in the villages and valleys of Afghanistan, and if the country continued effectively to be ungoverned space, then the jeopardy and the risk to the international community remained. And that explains the steps that were taken first in terms of international forces going in, um, ensuring that al-Qaeda were not operating, but then working to achieve the hard yards of building up not just uh, an army, but a government that that army um, could be supported by. I remember at the time you talking very movingly in your role about educating women and girls and, you know, absolutely no doubt over those 20 years we've seen huge progress for women and girls, which almost in an instant feels as if it's about to be reversed. Yes, this week has been searing, shattering for many of us who saw with our own eyes the gains that have been made in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. Whether you're thinking about the fact that back on in 2001, there were just one million kids in school in Afghanistan, all of them boys. But then by the time I was development secretary and in the years following, we saw more than five million young Afghans educated at primary school, more than half of them young girls. And if you had had the privilege that I had on the numerous visits that I made to Afghanistan to hear for yourself the hopes and dreams of those children, then I think you would feel the same sense of deep foreboding today that many of us who know that country well feel, because we know the suffering that preceded um, 2001 when in particular the rights of women were oppressed by a a medieval um, form of oppression 
and we know the gains that were made. You look at an organisation like the Halo Trust, based here in Scotland, I worked with them supporting them in mine clearance in Afghanistan. They did extraordinary work, not just clearing mines from the old Soviet conflict, but also um, the IEDs that have been placed there um, by the Taliban during the conflict. It is shattering um, for many of us to see the jeopardy that organisations who are simply there on humanitarian grounds to do well by the people of Afghanistan, the difficulties that they are now facing. I mean, obviously, you're not a politician now, but we've heard over the last few days the real emotion from politicians, and they quite often don't show it, uh, Douglas. And I just want to know how you personally feel right now about a country that you were so intrinsically involved in helping to rebuild and, and come in to the 21st century. I feel devastated by what's unfolded in recent days, not simply um, because I remember what Afghanistan was like and the fragile but very real progress that was being made, but because I feel a deep sense of fear and foreboding about what comes next for that country. And in that sense, you know, I was reflecting today on the day that Parliament has reconvened to discuss Afghanistan. The extraordinary courage, idealism, hope that was invested in those 20 years by aid workers, by diplomats, and of course the service and sacrifice of 457 British servicemen and women. And in that sense, I think there is time to reflect and to draw lessons from that experience. But the overriding priority today needs to be trying to get as many, not just British citizens, but Afghans who stepped up to the challenge of trying to give their children and that country a better future, the refuge that they now so desperately need. When you see how quickly it was all, it, it basically collapsed, was it worth it? Were the 20 years, were all those lives worth it? Well, on the narrow but important measure of were we subject to terrorist attacks um, committed and planned from Afghanistan, there was undoubtedly 20 years where those attacks did not happen. Would they have happened? We will never know. But we can be sure that at least on that um, measure, um, there was genuine support um, shown by the British Armed Forces and the NATO coalition to protect the West from that particular risk. Was there progress in terms of educating young girls? Undoubtedly, you know, a quarter of the Afghan parliament is now represented by female representatives. We've got female mayors in Afghanistan. We've got a nascent but growing civil society and Afghan media in which women are well represented. And so the sense of fear that I feel for those extraordinarily brave women is very raw and very real today because... <laughs> And this is a broader lesson I draw from when, I'm when I was International Development Secretary. When you travel abroad, I had very young kids when I spent most of the time that I spent visiting not just um, countries across the developing world, but also in particular time in Afghanistan. And when you meet kids in a conflict zone, what is what pierces your heart is not that they are different from your kids. It's how similar they are to your kids they have exactly the same hopes and ambitions, the same vulnerabilities, the same needs. 
And in some ways, I think the risk is in a country like Afghanistan that people think it is a faraway country of which they know little and a society that they can't relate to. If you've met many of these young Afghan boys and young Afghan girls and heard from them directly, their hopes they wanted to be... I remember standing in a classroom asking them what they wanted to do for the future. One of them said, I want to be a doctor. One of them said, I wanted to be a teacher. Another said, I want to be a fighter pilot to protect my family. That these were kids that would be recognisable in any school in Glasgow or Edinburgh, any part of Scotland. And in that sense, I think those of us who were part of that huge international effort see the human face of this conflict in a way that many at a distance, frankly, do not. And I guess that brings us to where we've got to today and, you know, Biden's decision for troops to pull out. I mean, do you think that was premature or do you just feel it was done badly? Um, Listen, it is arguable after 20 years that it was unsustainable for the United States to maintain a presence forever in Afghanistan. And that's a legitimate point of view. It is contradicted, I have to say, by the presence of American troops in South Korea, protecting that border many decades after um, the Korean uh, conflict that many of us um, have read about only in the history books. But there's an argument to be had there. I think few could argue or credibly defend the manner in which that decision has been taken. Um, Whether on the grounds of a timetable that was set, um, I would be concerned for symbolic reasons, blind to the suffering that dates on a calendar can make on the ground. And in that sense, I think even if you are of the view that America cannot continue in forever wars, then I, I think there have been profound failures that we've witnessed in recent weeks and months. A profound failure of intelligence, not to be able to anticipate properly what was the likely consequences of the action. A profound failure of planning, whereby we've seen exactly the scenes that even the Americans themselves were so desperate to avoid with chaos at the airport and people blocked from safe passage and refuge. And frankly, a profound failure of coordination and diplomacy. Um, I was deeply dispirited to hear President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who's a personal friend of mine and a former colleague at the Belfer Centre in in Harvard, admit yesterday that Joe Biden had not spoken to a single um, NATO leader ahead of the decisions that had been taken in recent days and the and the withdrawal that we've seen played out so horrifically on our television screen. So I think there have been profound failures in recent days and the greatest cost is going to be paid by those who are still um, at grave jeopardy and at real risk in Kabul. More than 450 members of the British Armed Forces lost their lives during military operations in Afghanistan. Many more were injured or left living with the mental scars of the conflict. Amid questions over whether the invasion was worth it, I spoke to Pete Sutherland, a former Talisman troop commander with 3-5 Engineer Regiment. So, um, Pete, could you tell us when you were in Afghanistan and what you did when you were there? So I was in Afghanistan in the summer of 2014, so near the end of the Herat campaigns. Um, I was a troop commander at the time in the Royal Engineers, so as a lieutenant in charge of a talisman task line, which was essentially a route proving and clearance 
uh, asset uh, whereby we have the capability to pretty much do what it says in the tin there, make sure that routes were clear and, and then deal with stuff if we needed to uh, in support of the infantry and, and other call signs that were part of the manoeuvre battle group at the time. And, and what was the situation like uh, at that point? I mean, obviously, uh, most of the kind of fiercest combat was was right at the start, um, sort of 2001 onwards. But but what was the situation like on, on the ground when you were there? So predominantly, we were supporting the withdrawal and the um, reduction in Camp Bastion by making sure that we would go out on operations to to make sure essentially there was a, a safe and secure zone and area around the base while that was happening. So we were out um, pretty much every week uh, for, for a few days kind of driving around the desert and um, in support of Maneuver Bath Group. So the the things were def- absolutely not as kinetic as it was in previous tours, absolutely not. Um, but we still were encountering uh, periodic small arms fire RPG. We did take one IED strike um, while we were out there, and others that we were out on the ground with um, also took took IED strikes um, in in those areas. But luckily, we had no casualties um, from from myself and from my team. Um, but there were some some casualties, I think, in the in the wider battle group. But as far as I'm aware, nothing too serious. Um, so we were encountering, I suppose, the the Afghans um, in that relatively close location to Bastion compared to other tours. And um, in terms of the interaction with any kind of Taliban or, or enemy forces that we did have was very fleeting at times and very difficult to pin down where they were by the nature of how they'd move around and they'd use the terrain. And, and also at that time, we were under... You know, very strict rules of engagement and having to positively identify um, targets. Uh, so as much as we had significant firepower with us, it was very much um, restrained to previous tours. And there was a lot of use of kind of I-Star capabilities and um, aviation assets, etc., in support of us, uh, which had better sight really on, on um, any activity that there was. And, and how did you feel when you were out there? Did you feel that you were engaged in something that was uh, that was that was worthwhile and, and useful, and and um, was was ultimately going to be in the sort of long term interests of of not only the UK but but also Afghanistan? From my perspective, yes. So I, you know, I feel like I'm was well um, versed in. The history and the reasons why we were there in terms of the original operation back in kind of 2001 that initial uh, removal of the taliban which then morphed into the counterinsurgency and nation building and, and other tasks from there so yes you know but by the presence that we had in that country there was the ability for for them to operate not under the shadow of the Taliban. So that in itself, I think, was a positive. In terms of on the ground and the daily basis of what we were doing, it's very difficult to see sometimes that um, difference and that improvement because we were very much in protective mobility vehicles. We didn't have that direct interaction. I wasn't involved with a lot of the ANA. We came across the ANA and the Afghan National Police and we had 
dealings with them in different situations, but nothing prolonged. Um, so it was difficult from our perspective to see, I think, the the daily tasks on the ground that was happening. But I did believe that overall our presence there was a benefit. I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, it didn't come with its um, difficulties. And, you know, by our presence in Helmand, I think definitely in previous tours as well, you know, that brought a lot of fighting into areas and and the kind of collateral damage that that, that inevitably has. Um, but overall, in terms of being able to assist and provide a, a stability in the country which would allow for kind of greater freedoms etc then yes that was in the back of my mind it wasn't the front of my mind the front of my mind every day was about just focusing on what our specific mission was and making sure that all of my troop and all my attached call signs and individuals were safe and we made it back to bastion at the end of at the end of each operation so what, what's your reaction now when you see television pictures of, of the Taliban rolling into Kabul and effectively um, taking taking over the entire country? What's what's your reaction to that? Um, it's been quite mixed, I think, the last few days. I've thought about it quite a lot and I've been listening to the various statements that have been made from our kind of political leaders, both sides of the Atlantic. And um, I think... Initially, I I did feel probably a lot of anger um, at how the situation unfolded. I think that you know we we had no right to be there forever, um, and the Afghans need to be able to run and secure their own country at some point. Yes, um, but it's a difficult situation, and. Um, I feel like because things have happened so quickly, it, it's been a bit of a shock. And it, I suppose I feel that a bit let down by, by how it was organized at the end or how things played out at the end um, in terms of that. When I mentioned before, I probably had some, some anger. It partly is directed towards um, how, from what I've seen from my kind of, distant position, things have unfolded on the ground with the the actual Afghan forces themselves. There seems to be quite a lot of local deals being struck um, to essentially save people's skin. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. There definitely has been huge sacrifices by the Afghans over the years. There's been tens of thousands of casualties on the Afghan forces side over the over the past um, couple of decades, and that should never be forgotten. And I think it's quite unfair, some of the comments that, that came out from the White House about the Afghans running away when seem to be forgetting those sacrifices that have happened and were done alongside our forces as well. But yes, there is that anger and maybe confusion as to why things happen so quickly and there didn't seem to be as much as a fight put up. But I think what also plays into that is how the support was structured and again I'm, I'm not an expert on this and you know I'm, I'm quite removed from it in many ways but the support that was there from the coalition and especially the Americans was based on that logistical and technical support to the Afghans and by what appears to be such a sudden um, removal of what was small for a small volume of a full amount of forces that were there 
So the removal of a small amount of forces that were there um, seems to have completely kind of undermined that morale and that moral component of fighting power, um, for want of a better phrase. But um, it, it just seems to be that confusion around how quickly it's happened. And I think that's come from multiple sources. I think, again, the anger comes from when you listen to uh, some of the statements whereby referencing we were they were only ever meant to be there for counterterrorism, which may be true at the start, but that in my mind ignores the fact that for years after that, British soldiers and American soldiers went there under missions of counterinsurgency and of nation building and have been injured and casualties have been inflicted during that presence. So you can't just forget that that, that was that was happening. Um, so I can understand why people, because of comments like that, may feel that their sacrifices then went, weren't worth it. Um, but their sacrifices definitely were worth it, 100% worth it. And I think there'll be a lot of people who are conflicted, confused, upset, people who experience terrible things out there. And those that themselves may not have been injured, but witnessed and had to deal with it, that kind of ripple effect of colleagues, friends and families as well. I can understand why they, they would feel uh, or some of them would feel that, you know, they've been let down and was it worth it? And, you know, that's a completely natural thing, I think, to feel. But it definitely was worth it. What they've done, is, I think what the people out there have done and they, the forces out there have done has been a fantastic job. And even for the last 20 years, the stability that it has in terms of the additional ability for Afghans to go about the business and women's rights, etc., can't be undone. So that's a good thing. And only time will tell now if the Taliban actually hold up to what they are saying just now. I have my extreme doubts that they will, because when you just look at history and how they've been and what their formation is, but only time will tell. Um, but do you think, um, I mean, you, you, you're you saying that uh, you think it was worth it. If, if the Taliban do erode some of the, the hard-fought gains that you made in terms of or the the allied forces made would it still be worth it i mean if if we go back to a situation similar to the one that we saw in the late 90s early 2000s um and and how the taliban were running afghanistan at that time would it would it still be worth it yes and no um it would be worth it because there has been 20 years of Afghanistan not being a base for terror. And yes, it's, you know, there's, there's other parts of the world things have spread to, but Afghanistan in itself has not been used as a base for 20 years. And that's because of the work that's been done and the sacrifices that have been made. And the education that people have had for the last 20 years is not going to disappear. Yes, it would be an absolute crying shame if the Taliban do not change. And, um, go back to what they were like in the early 90s um of course it would be it would be heart-wrenching but i think for for the service personnel that have been injured in that they've got to believe that it has been worth it we never gave up the hunt for osama bin laden and we got him that was a decade ago our mission in afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation building It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on American homeland. 
Mr. Speaker, it's almost 20 years since the United States suffered the most catastrophic attack on its people since the Second World War, in which 67 British citizens also lost their lives at the hands of murderous terrorist groups incubated in Afghanistan. In response, NATO invoked Article 5 of its treaty for the first and only time in its history. And the United Kingdom, amongst others, joined America in going into Afghanistan on a mission to extirpate al-Qaeda in that country and to do whatever we could to stabilise Afghanistan in spite of all the difficulties and challenges we knew that we would face. And we succeeded in that core mission. And yes, I will uh, give way to my rather more friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall and on this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by my colleagues Margaret Taylor, Jack Thompson and Louise Wilson to discuss the upcoming edition of the magazine and what's been happening in the world of Scottish politics. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has just finished making a statement in Parliament amid what she calls an extremely concerning rise in COVID cases. Um, Jack, the situation is uh, starting to look quite bad, isn't it, in terms of the number of cases? Yeah, and it's kind of, it's, it's felt that way, hasn't it, for the past week or, you know, the past couple of weeks where we're seeing numbers of daily cases which are quite, you know, astronomical. We've seen records hit kind of quite a few times, um, cases breaching 7,000, you know, on some days. So it certainly felt like action was needed um, and, you know, there was speculation about whether that might be a circuit breaker, which the First Minister was kind of quick to say, you know, we're not considering a circuit breaker. Um, one of the other things yeah. though, that was kind of reported to be being considered was uh, vaccine passports and it's just been confirmed that um, the plan is to go ahead with, you know, a form of vaccine passports, passports which will, um, you know, have to be approved by the Parliament. But, you know, given the kind of makeup of the Parliament, you'd expect that to go ahead. So it looks like that's going to be the route that they're going to go down in the first instance before maybe reverting back to other restrictions. Yeah. I mean, what, what does everyone think about vaccine passports? I mean, Louise, what, what, what do you think? I mean, I'm, I, I myself am fairly relaxed about them. I mean, I know a lot of people think that it's the beginning of the end and the start of some sort of totalitarian state. But if I was going to a gig, for example, I would like to know that, you know, most of the people in the gig, if not everyone in the gig, has been has been vaccinated. Yeah, and I think that's the choice, really, isn't it? You know, we've had a few of the reaction um, statements already coming in saying, like, from a lot of venues that will be affected, saying, we don't like it, but it's better than being shut down. And yeah. I, I think I'm in the same camp. I mean, I'm not a partic- I mean, I'm not particularly against the idea, but you know, it, it there is some arguments there about civil liberties and not wanting sort of um things like that preventing you from doing what you want to do, but equally if the the alternative is going into lockdown again in winter, I, I'd rather go for the the vaccine passports. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, Mar- Margaret, it does seem like, uh, you know, a lot of this has been blamed on schools going back, but it does seem like a lot of it when you're out and about that we've gone from a position of having quite uh, strict, severe restrictions to having no restrictions at all. And in a lot of people's minds, that has basically meant, 
life has returned to normal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you walk around the streets and it's like there's nothing happening at all. Uh, masks don't look to be particularly the norm anymore. I mean, certainly in supermarkets or whatever, people are wearing them. But I don't think people are getting quite the dirty looks if they don't have them on that they, they would have received before for whether that was a good thing or not. But yeah, the streets are crowded, transport's crowded, and people are very much going about life as normal, which... I suppose is, is a good thing in a sense because we want to get back to that, but with, with the way that the numbers are, and I guess we haven't really seen the full extent of the impact of that on the health service yet, it's probably, caution is probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, Jack, uh, First Minister, said that today, that we're still not seeing uh, you know big numbers of people in intensive care, um, but... She, she mentioned a figure of 10,000 cases a day and she said that if we get to 10,000 cases a day, even if a very small percentage of those end up in intensive care or end up in hospital, that's still a, a small percentage of a large number. That's still a lot of people ending up in hospital. Yeah, and that's kind of been, you know, something that she's reiterated quite a few times over the past few weeks is, you know, it doesn't kind of take a genius to figure out that a small percentage of a high number um, could still potentially be quite a high number. Um, and I think as well, you know, a lot of the kind of, you know, it still seems that the vaccines are kind of breaking that link, you know, between um, cases and serious illness. But it it might not really be much solace for people who are in that position, you know, who become seriously ill, you know. Um, so I think there's that to, to take account of as well. When you think about the figures, there are still numbers of people albeit, you know, not particularly high, there are still people out there who are getting seriously ill. So perhaps something that we don't, you know, want to lose sight of. And I'm sure it's something that the First Minister as well is probably, you know, trying to make sure that people don't lose sight of. Um, but and it looks like hospitals are kind of generally managing, you know, at the moment, although I know um, Hamza Yusuf was saying, I think just the other day that, you know, it's with absences and things like that, we could be at a sort of perfect storm stage. So... It makes sense that, you know, it's something that they're kind of closely monitoring. Yeah, Louise, we've got the we've got the added worry as well that as people go back to their daily lives and start to uh, mingle more and socialise more, that we could also get a, a, a quite a big um, flu surge over the summer, which is which is yet another thing for the NHS to worry about. Yeah, um, obviously, you know, flu um, for, for the, well, last year was actually relatively low and that's that's as a result of the restrictions being in place um so you know we actually saw a bit of a benefit in terms of, of flu deaths um but yeah you don't want to add add covid on on top of flu this year just incidentally i got the first train that i've got in 18 months uh well the sh first um scotland train in the last yeah. 18 months last weekend um it happened to be on the sunday which is cost when scotrail was striking so it was the one lner service um <laughs> between sterling and edinburgh that day and it was absolutely rammed um so i had my face mask on my partner had my face mask on but there was a couple around us that that didn't um and, and that just, I just felt I think they've said, insisted on wearing masks on trains, haven't they? Because the other week um, mm. I was on a train and lots of people weren't wearing them at all. But I think it was that kind of, it, it was a week of beyond zero and people didn't really know what the rules mm. were. It's like, okay, lots of rules have lifted, but Scott Rail's rules perhaps weren't all that obvious. So I, I think a lot of people had them kind of around their chins. 
<laughs> ready to put yeah, them people, people that wear face masks around their chins, I mean, that's something I've not, not really understood. I mean, that puts you in a very difficult situation, though, if you're if you're on a bus or a train and, and somebody's not wearing a mask, then what are you supposed to do? You can't. I, I wasn't sure myself. Like, I was sat at a table on my own. I wasn't sure if I should have mine on or not for the duration of the journey. And then I did yeah. see the next day a tweet from ScotRail saying that their own rules specifically are that you must wear them when you're travelling. I think it's just that mixed message and people just aren't quite sure yeah, at the moment. People are still unsure. And Louise, moving away from COVID, this week we've had the two Green co-leaders uh, confirmed as junior ministers in the Scottish government. What, what are they going to be getting up to? Um, yeah, so their positions reflect much of what was in the Green Deal. It's about active travel. It's about energy efficiency. There's a bit in there about tenant rights. Um, so that'll be, they were confirmed yesterday, and that'll be really interesting to see going forward, given that they are the first um, Green ministers in, in the UK ever. Um, there's also, obviously, that's had... Um, I guess a bit of a, a negative impact on 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 them in Parliament. It means that they get a bit less cash that opposition usually gets um, to sort of well, mount mount their opposition, I guess. Um, and it also means that they won't get a question at uh, first ministers' questions as regularly. They won't get speaking slots in debates because officially they are part uh, part of government. Um, of course, they must have seen all that coming before they agreed to the deal but um, there was a lot of hay made yesterday about how uh, how they'd lost out on, on the, those important functions. So do, do you think there's still a net benefit for them to, to be in government even though they lose out on all the all the stuff that they have as, as an opposition party? Uh, I mean it's difficult to say isn't it this uh, early on um, presumably they've weighed up their options and said actually yeah it makes more sense for us to be in government. I suppose the danger here, and and it's the same with any sort of party that smaller party that goes into coalition or just shy of coalition, is that any positives that come of it, the majority party is always going to have the more resources to claim those as wins, and then they can blame the smaller party for anything that doesn't go ahead. Um, uh, you know, there's always the question of how much sway will actually the Greens hold in in government. Um, you know, the being junior minister positions as opposed to cabinet secretary positions is an interesting one. Um, and, and you know, they've had to sign up to a bunch of SNP policy, which isn't green policy. Um, and you wonder where where the shifts are actually going to come in the long term. Yeah, I mean, Margaret, a lot of the, the interesting stuff is in the stuff that's left out, you know, the excluded matters and... You know, looking at the kind of Green Manifesto or the Greens Manifesto in years gone by, that's it's in some of those uh, areas. You know, things like um, getting rid of nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, moving away from oil and gas in like a very quick timescale. That's that's where they're really interesting, um, if pretty radical, and they've been kind of neutered on stuff. Well, that that's exactly the thing, isn't it? The, the the radicalness of their of their policies, and that's it. It was interesting this week that um, the interview that Greta Thunberg gave to to the BBC, saying that yeah, well, whatever, <laughs> the, the Greens are in. Maybe they're they're not quite as bad as the others. But actually, what she was saying, and I think what m- most campaigners would say, is that actually, if if we're going to have a proper green agenda, if we're going to reach net zero, if we're going to decarbonise the economy, it needs to be radical. It needs to be a, a huge systemic change, not kind of little nudges that a very, very minor partner in government can, can make. 
Yeah, and um, one final thing to talk about this week, Jack. We've had the slightly surreal sight of um, Michael Gove um, dancing, <laughs> dancing in Aber- Aberdeen. Uh, what, what did you? I know you're a regular visitor to Aberdeen. What did you? What did you make of that? Were you disappointed not to be up in Aberdeen when you bumping into Michael Gove on the dance floor? Um, oh, I think it's best I reserve comment on that one, isn't it? Why? <laughs> I mean, you, you, have, you do, you do. It's just one of those surreal situations, isn't it? That you see, you know, it pops up every now and then. A politician kind of appearing in, you know, a pretty random place um, and doing something to make people laugh. Life is um, difficult. I still wonder. Why shouldn't he have a nice dance? <laughs> exactly. No, look, look like he's on the um, it looks Absolutely. like he was, he was having a great time. And you sometimes wonder, you know, was it was it perhaps perhaps you know carefully planned so that he kind of looked like he was um, you know, a man of the people as such, or or who knows? But yeah, I mean, at least he was having a a great time, and it, lo- it looks like he did pay the entry fee, didn't he? Um, despite a bit of kind of dubiety over that. <laughs> I can't I can't imagine it was planned. I can imagine lots of uh, PR people in government pulling their hair out when they when they saw that Daily Record story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw um, I, a clip of uh, Michael Gove. Somebody had uh, taken some some of uh, a clip from Train Spotting where uh, Ren- perfectly. Yeah, where Ren- Renton's on the dance floor and they'd spliced in Michael Gove in the background, and it, it just it was perfect, absolutely perfect. I saw a clip of Mr. Bean dancing, and he had the exact suit and the exact moves of Michael Gove. Yeah, he's uh, he's got he's got his own unique style. Let's uh, <laughs> put it that way. Um, so mo- moving on to um, moving on to the magazine, and um, the, the the next magazine comes out next week. But Margaret, you've been uh, you've been looking at COP twenty six and speaking to people about what might what might be achieved. Yeah, that's right. So it's two months exactly now until COP takes place in Glasgow. Um, and we're kind of looking at what what the hopes are, what the fears are for the summit this year. It's, I mean, it's obviously been put off from last year. So things that were pressing a year ago are even more pressing now, um, specifically some of the rules around the, the Paris Agreement, which was obviously signed at COP in 2015. Um, there are some, well, lots of countries have made their commitments around net zero in the wake of that. That That isn't legally binding, but then there are some rules that need to be put in place. Um, I mean, what, the thing that the thing that I, I did find really interesting was, was the stuff about basically smaller countries being disenfranchised. Yeah. And you, you talk about the Pacific Islanders, I think, is the example that's used. And they've, they've somehow managed to round up a couple of Pacific Islanders living in Glasgow. My first thought on that was, why the hell would you move from the Pacific Islands to Glasgow? But yeah. interestingly... I have a feeling those people were working at one of the universities. So they, right, okay. <laughs> I, I think that that's what they were doing in Glasgow. But yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, the Pacific Islands, they're uh, one of the, the places that, that's really severely affected by climate change. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they're 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 like not going to be here to have a say in, in what's going on at COP because of um, COVID and the pandemic and travel restrictions, etc. Um, the, the, there's talk about the decision making parts of the conference, perhaps moving to a hybrid model where the people that can make it here will be in the room and then others can dial in. But again, that puts those people at a big disadvantage. So we're, we're going to have all like. The European nations, which send massive delegations, they're all going to be here. They'll be in the room when the decisions are being made. And then people in the global south, Pacific Islands, places like that, 
they may be able to dial in, but then they have problems with power supplies, with internet connections, etc. And, and also the day and night effects, like because of time differences. So they, they'll be staying up overnight to take part in discussions here. So that that puts them at a serious disadvantage. And um, the, the organisation Stop Climate Chaos Scotland, it, it was them that organised this delegation of Pacific Islanders who are actually in Glasgow. So they, they don't need to know anything about the arguments. They don't need to know much about climate change. They basically just need to be the mouthpiece for mm -hmm. the, uh, the people in the Pacific Islands who, in their daytime, they can set up, they can study what we've discussed during their nighttime here, and then they can feed in to the people who are here who will go and be their advocates and their, their spokespeople at the conference. It doesn't solve anything by any means. That doesn't solve everything by any means, but it, it, it will at least ensure that they will have some kind of a voice at the conference. Uh, Louise, what, what's your sense about just how optimistic we should be about COP26? I mean, I know it's a really difficult question to answer, but um, there's this famous quote from John Kerry where he says, you know, basically this is the world's last best chance to solve climate change. But I can't say I've heard of a huge amount of optimism, optimism coming from anyone about, about COP26. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely that feeling among, I mean, basically everyone that I've spoken to about it, that, you know, this is the one, this is the big opportunity. If we walk away from Glasgow um, in November without having secured some sort of Glasgow agreement, then that's kind of it and we've not done enough. Um, but at the same time, I've not, yeah, I'm the same. I've not heard a lot of people actually be like, yes, I think we'll definitely come away with something. Um I don't know that there's a Glasgow agreement on the table. I don't think that's the point of this one. I think the point is to finalise Paris. I don't think anyone's particularly looking for a Glasgow agreement. Oh, see, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think the idea is to kind of check... Going for a Glasgow agreement. Um, I was speaking to someone mm. um, way back in, in March, and he was saying that if we don't come away with a Glasgow agreement, then mm. it will be considered a failure. Um, and that, that was one of the sort of subnational government bodies um, mm. saying that. So, uh, I mean, I've, I mean, there you are. There's just, it's different views on what is expected. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know, mm. the UK government in particular isn't really saying what a successful outcome would be just yet. And that mm. could also be seen as it hedging its bets so it can say whatever mm. happens is a success. Mm -hmm. But it might not necessarily be a success in how a lot of people would view it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the Paris Agreement is all you know often held up as this historic agreement. But the way I've heard it framed was that basically Paris was the easy bit. Paris was everyone agreeing that the world was in dire straits and we needed to do something. And Glasgow is the really difficult job of actually saying to people, this is what we need to do to achieve Paris. Paris was the PR, wasn't it? Everyone. And that's going to be that's going to be really problematic. We made this like brilliant agreement, aren't we? Brilliant. Yeah. Look at us. We're, we're we're going to save the world, but but actually doing it in practice is the hard bit, isn't it? And no one's no one's doing that. Um, but I mean, you spoke to to Lana Slater, the new the new Green Minister, recently, didn't you, Chris, about that? And and she wasn't exactly optimistic either. No, um, the, the interview obviously will appear in the magazine next week. But um, yeah, Lorna Slater, I wouldn't say was massively optimistic about COP, which surprised me, uh, given that given that she's a green politician. Um, but it, it's something that you hear again and again, and, and there's there's I think there's a massive kind of split in the in the climate 
camp about about just how we approach this issue. You know, do we approach it through um, through politics and through and is that how as individuals we have agency, or do you go down the extinction rebellion route and try and just wreak havoc? And I mean, I personally, I personally, uh, you know, I, I'm worried about the climate. And the more you read, the more worrying. Uh, and, and frightening it becomes, but I don't see how extinction rebellion will achieve anything by closing roads and you know making it more difficult for people to get to their work. I mean, I remember seeing something last year or maybe the year before where uh, extinction rebellion were, were on a tube train and where they stopped a tube train from moving. You think like these are people that are already using public transport, and you're making it more difficult for them to. Uh, to get to get to work, so uh, I don't necessarily understand. I don't necessarily agree that that's the way forward. I mean, does anyone ever? Does anyone else have a, a view on Extinction Rebellion? I mean, I think they've certainly worked in getting stuff on to the agenda. You know, it's it's made yeah. headlines. Um, was it Extinction Rebellion that did that stunt a couple of years ago, where they chained themselves to the Scottish Parliament, or was that another climate? I'm not sure. Anyway, that was quite successful at getting all the leaders of the parties out out to talk about it um they stopped all the the printing presses in london didn't they a couple mm, of years ago um but yeah it comes down to you know if it's i wonder how much it's doing in terms of getting public opinion on board if they're actually actually just getting in the way of people and people are going to be rolling their eyes thinking oh it's extension rebellion again or whether it is actually Mm -hmm. working at getting people to talk about climate change um i think there's a bit of that i i I do think there's a bit of that it's like Mm -hmm. I suppose it's like the trade unions, isn't it? Like when they're going in for an agreement, they'll ask for the absolute world, knowing that they have a point where they will actually reach agreement. But like, I think that there is a degree of like, you have to kick up a hell of a stink to get anywhere near what might be needed or what you actually would agree to. I mean, I don't know if that's actually Extinction Rebellion strategy. But... Well, yeah, I suppose, I mean, you're mentioning, mentioning uh, the trade unions. It's similar to like strikes of the past, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if you uh, if you're a train driver and, and you go on strike, at what point do the public stop uh, sympathising with your cause? You know, if, if if after two weeks of not being able to get the train to work, do you suddenly go, you know, what I was on side with the train drivers, and, and now because I can't get to work anymore, they've they've managed to alienate me. Yeah, yeah. But but the um, unions know that, don't they? So that they will then agree something less than what they were asking for in the first place. Yeah. I guess it's just all that that dance, isn't it? Like, which way it goes? Yeah, but extinction rebellion are literally asking for the earth. They, you know, it's not it's not a figurative thing. They are literally asking for the earth, and it's difficult to know how politicians, elected politicians, will be able to will be able to appease them anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jack, you've also been looking at climate issues for for the mag. Who have you been speaking to? Yeah, so I spoke to Nigel Topping, who is the um, the UK government's high-level climate action champion, um, which is a, a bit of a tongue twister that one. Um, but yeah, he um, he was a he's a very interesting individual, actually. Kind of um, he's was appointed kind of in I think it was January twenty twenty um, for, for two um, COP cycles. To sort of drive kind of action um, among um, businesses and, and the like, um, but he's also got a connection to Scotland. He was he was born here, um, born in Glasgow, kind of lived uh, in the north, 
um, and he actually credits it for a lot of his um, for kind of shaping his, his passion for the environment and for the outdoors. Um, and so he kind of talked about that. He's he's quite a, a down to earth, self deprecating guy. He kind of talks about um, you know how he how he came to to kind of be involved in, in what he's doing now um, and how, you know, really he's quite, he's quite brutally honest actually about the situation that we face in terms of the kind of um, the fight against climate change and, you know, kind of says in pretty blunt terms that we really are, you know, messing things up, but also kind of talks about, you know, that activist mindset of always remaining hopeful and he looked ahead to COP26 as well and he still seems, you know, very hopeful and positive about what can be done there and what can be achieved um, and I think he sees it as a real opportunity for, you know, for it to cut through, you know, the kind of the climate change sort of um, issue, you know, for it to cut through into everyday conversation, you know, while this is going on, because I think sometimes that can be an issue. Um, I don't know if that's something that you guys agree with, but I, I sometimes think that, you know, it doesn't quite maybe, you know, you see it, politicians will talk about it, you maybe see it in the news, but I don't know if it kind of cuts through to everyone, you know, how important an issue it is for us to kind of tackle. I think unless people have been flooded or whatever, you don't think about it, do you? Like, it's all very well to see Mm. images of other places that are flooded and hear about warming and all that. But unless you experience something yourself, I think that's why the reaction to the pandemic was so... People universally got on board with it because everyone was impacted. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw some polling today. I can't remember where it was. It was one of these things that popped up on Twitter, and it and it seems to suggest that the climate is now in the sort of top uh, top three issues that the electric care about, going from basically nowhere about five ten years ago. No one really cared about it. It was a it was a sort of fringe minority interest, and it's now you know in the sort of top two or three things that, that people care about. Um, and I think that's only going to become. Uh, more the case is, is more of these sort of dramatic weather events happen. I mean, I personally, you know, um, I've always been aware of climate change, but it's only really in the last sort of few years that I've started to, to, to read about it properly and listen, you know, you listen to podcasts and you read about it and, and it is, it is really frightening just the pace that is coming. And I think, um, the, the thing that was worrying about the IPCC report was that we thought we had, more time to deal with these things than we actually do. The the extreme weather events that were predicted sort of 10, 20 years in the future, they seem to be coming kind of quite thick and fast. They're coming quicker than even the scientists thought, which is a real worry. So is, is Nigel Topping, um, is, he's optimistic then that some sort of deal will be will be struck at COP, Jack? I think to, he kind of talked more in general terms, you know, he didn't kind of really necessarily broach it um, in that sense it kind of said that you know as um, what what he said that I quite liked was that it kind of envisages a cop where you know people are going you know home at night or they'll go they'll go to the the pubs afterwards and they'll be talking about climate change and then they'll be talking about climate change over breakfast in the morning so he thinks it's a kind of real opportunity in November in Glasgow for you know the kind of um, the stuff that you know the positive stuff um, that is going on you know in Scotland um, in some areas to be kind of discussed and highlighted um, but then also you know just the issue more generally to be kind of um, you know discussed and, and debated um, I think um, you know the real thing I think for me for COP26 which is is probably going to prove important is whether 
you know, some of the um, is getting, you know, people around the table in terms of the big emitters and, you know, also the people that are affected really by the worst effects of climate change. That's kind of, I guess, you know, if they're able to do that, and I know there was kind of um, perhaps a bit of people were not sure whether um, everyone's able, is going to be able to get there because of, you know, issues with vaccines and things like that or um, getting them to delegates and stuff like that. But I think it's important, you know, for for everyone to get around the table and to be able to talk about this um, as they kind of thrash out some of the issues. And Louise, you've, um, you've written your sketch for the magazine uh, this week on uh, Dominic Rabb's travels. Um, and he unluckily happened to be on a beach in Crete just as a Taliban uh, who, who, according to Dominic Rabb, the Taliban surprised even themselves how quick they managed to capture Kabul. But I was just wondering, do you think uh, we might see the Greens appearing in a sketch at some point, or, or even the issue of climate change, or is climate change just too serious an issue that you can't write a sketch about it? Uh, I mean, that's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? Um... I mean, I dare say the Greens will make an appearance at, at some point in one, but I don't know whether it will be on the topic of, of climate change, per se. Maybe um, there'll be some COP26 dancing going on. But, I mean, yeah. you, you wouldn't have necessarily thought that the, the Taliban would be uh, part of a sketch either, so who can say? Who can say? <laughs> Indeed, and Margaret's right. If we get uh, Michael Gove at COP26 on the dance floor, you never know. Mm. Uh, okay, thanks, everyone. Um, And uh, that's all for the podcast this week. Uh, We'll be back next week. Please join us then. to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall, and on this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by my colleagues Margaret Taylor, Jack Thompson, and Louise Wilson to discuss the upcoming edition of the magazine and what's been happening in the world of Scottish politics. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has just finished making a statement in Parliament amid what she calls an extremely concerning rise in COVID cases. Um, Jack, the situation is uh, starting to look quite bad, isn't it, in terms of the number of cases? Yeah, and it's kind of, it's, it's felt that way, hasn't it, for the past week or, you know, past couple of weeks where we're seeing numbers of daily cases, which are quite, you know, astronomical. We've seen records hit kind of quite a few times, um, cases breaching 7,000, you know, on some days. So it certainly felt like action was needed. Um, and, you know, there was speculation about whether that might be a circuit breaker, which the First Minister was kind of quick to say, you know, we're not considering a circuit breaker. Um, one of the other things yeah. though, that was kind of reported to be being considered was uh, vaccine passports. And it's just been confirmed that um, the plan is to go ahead with, you know, a form of vaccine passports, passports which will, um, you know, have to be approved by the Parliament. But, you know, given the kind of, make up of the parliament you'd expect that to go ahead so it looks like that's going to be the route that they're going to go down in the first instance before maybe reverting back to other restrictions yeah i mean what what does everyone think about vaccine passports i mean louise what 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 do you think i mean i'm i i myself am fairly relaxed about them i mean i know a lot of people think that it's the beginning of the end and the start of some sort of totalitarian state but 
if I was going to a gig, for example, I would like to know that, you know, most of the people in the gig, if not everyone in the gig, has been has been vaccinated. Yeah, and I think that's the choice, really, isn't it? You know, we've had a few of the reaction um, statements already coming in saying, like, from a lot of venues that will be affected, saying we don't like it, but it's better than being shut down. And yeah. I think I'm in the same camp. I mean, I'm not... I mean, I'm not particularly against the idea, but you know, it, it there is some arguments there about civil liberties and not wanting sort of um, things like that preventing you from doing what you want to do. But equally, if the the alternative is going into lockdown again in winter, I, I'd rather go for the the vaccine passports. Yeah, and I mean, Mar- Margaret, it does seem like uh, you know a lot of this has been blamed on schools going back but it does seem like a lot of when you're out and about that we've gone from a position of having quite uh, strict severe restrictions to having no restrictions at all and in a lot of people's minds that has basically meant life has returned to normal yeah absolutely i mean you, you walk around the streets and it's like there's nothing happening at all uh, masks don't look to be particularly the norm anymore i mean certainly in supermarkets or whatever people are wearing them but i don't think people are getting quite the dirty looks if they don't have them on that they, they would have received before for whether that was a good thing or not but yeah the streets are crowded transport's crowded and people are very much going about life as normal which I suppose is, is a good thing in a sense because we want to get back to that, but with, with the way that the numbers are, and I guess we haven't really seen the full extent of the impact of that on the health service yet, it's probably, caution is probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, Jack, uh, First Minister, said that today that we're still not seeing uh, you know big numbers of people in intensive care, um, but she she mentioned the figure of 10,000 cases a day and she said that if we get to 10,000 cases a day, even if a very small percentage of those end up in intensive care or end up in hospital, that's still a, a small percentage of a large number. That's still a lot of people ending up in hospital. Yeah, and that's kind of been, the, you know, something that she's reiterated quite a few times over the past few weeks is, you know, it doesn't kind of take a genius to figure out that a small percentage of a high number um, could still potentially be quite a high number. Um, and I think as well, you know, a lot of the kind of, you know, it still seems that the vaccines are kind of breaking that link, you know, between um, cases and serious illness. But it it might not really be much solace for people who are in that position, you know, who become seriously ill, you know. Um, so I think there's that to, to take account of as well. When you think about the figures, there are still numbers of people albeit, you know, not particularly high, there are still people out there who are getting seriously ill. So perhaps something that we don't, you know, want to lose sight of. And I'm sure it's something that the First Minister as well is probably, you know, trying to make sure that people don't lose sight of. Um, but anyway, it looks like hospitals are kind of generally managing, you know, at the moment, although I know um, Hamza Youssef was saying, I think just the other day that, you know, it's with absences and things like that, we could be at a sort of perfect storm stage. So, it makes sense that, you know, it's something that they're kind of closely monitoring. Yeah, Louise, I mean, we've got the we've got the added worry as well that as people go back to their daily lives and start to uh, mingle more and socialise more, that we could also get a, a, a quite a big um, flu surge over the summer, which is which is yet another thing for the NHS to worry about. Yeah, um, obviously, you know, flu um, for the, for the well 
last year was actually relatively low and that's that's as a result of the restrictions being in place um so you know we actually saw a bit of a benefit in terms of, of flu deaths um but yeah you don't want to add add covid on on top of flu this year just incidentally i got the first train that i've got in 18 months uh well the sh- first um scotland train in the last yeah. 18 months last weekend um it happened to be on the sunday which is cost when scotrail was striking so it was the one lner service um <laughs> between sterling and edinburgh that day and it was absolutely rammed um so i had mm. my face mask on my partner had my face mask on but there was a couple around us that that didn't um and, and that just, I just felt, felt I think weird. Said, insisted on wearing masks on trains, haven't they? Because the other week um, mm. I was on a train and lots of people weren't wearing them at all. But I think it was that kind of, it, it was a week of beyond zero and people didn't really know what the rules mm. were. It's like, okay, lots of rules have lifted, but Scott Rail's rules perhaps weren't all that obvious. So I, I think a lot of people had them kind of around their chins. <laughs> ready to pull yeah, them people, people who wear face masks around their chins. I mean, that's they're not not really understood. I mean, that puts you in a very difficult situation though. If you're if you're on a bus or a train, and, and somebody's not wearing a mask, then what are you supposed to do? You can't. I, I wasn't sure myself. Like, I was sat at a table on my own. I wasn't sure if I should have mine on or not for the duration of the journey. And then I did see yeah. the next day a tweet from Scott Rail saying that their own rules specifically are that you must wear them when you're travelling. I think it's just that mixed message and people just aren't quite sure yeah, at the moment. People are still unsure. And Louise, moving away from COVID, this week we've had the two Green co-leaders uh, confirmed as junior ministers in the Scottish government. What what are they going to be getting up to? Um, yeah, so their positions reflect much of what was in the Green Deal. It's about active travel. It's about energy efficiency. There's a bit in there about tenant rights. Um, so that'll be, they were confirmed yesterday and that'll be really interesting to see going forward given that they are the first um, Green Ministers in, in the UK ever. Um, there's also obviously that's had, um, I guess, a bit of a, a negative impact on, on, on them in Parliament. It means that they get a bit less cash that opposition usually gets um, to sort of what, mount, mount their opposition, I guess. Um, <laughs> And it also means that they won't get a question at uh, First Minister's questions as regularly. They won't get speaking slots in debates because officially they are part uh, part of government. Um, of course, they must have seen all that coming before they agreed to the deal. But um, there was a lot of hay made yesterday about how uh, how they'd lost out on, on the, those important functions. So do, do you think there's still a net benefit for them to, to be in government, even though they lose out on all the all the stuff that they have as, as an opposition party? Uh, I mean, it's difficult to say, isn't it, this uh, early on? Um, presumably they've weighed up their options and said, actually, yeah, it makes more sense for us to be in government. I suppose the danger here, and, and it's the same with any sort of party, that smaller party that goes into coalition or just shy of coalition, is that any positives that come of it, the majority party is always going to have the more resources to claim those as wins and then they can blame the smaller party for anything that doesn't go ahead. Um, uh, you know, there's always the question of how much sway will actually the Greens hold in, in government. Um, you know, the junior minister positions as opposed to cabinet secretary positions is an interesting one. Um, and, and you know, they've had to sign up to a bunch of SNP policy, which isn't green policy. Um, and you wonder where where the shifts are actually going to come in the long term. 
Yeah, I mean, Margaret, a lot of the the interesting stuff is in the stuff that's left out, you know, the excluded matters. And, you know, looking at the kind of Green Manifesto or the Greens Manifesto in years gone by, that's it's in some of those uh, areas, you know, things like um, getting rid of nuclear weapons, uh, you know, moving away from oil and gas in like a very quick timescale. That's that's where they're really interesting, um, if pretty radical. And they've been kind of neutered on stuff. Well, that that's exactly the thing, isn't it? The, the the radicalness of their of their policies, and that's it. It was interesting this week that um, the interview that Greta Thunberg gave to to the BBC, saying that yeah, well, whatever <laughs> the, the Greens are in, maybe they're they're not quite as bad as the others. But actually, what she was saying, and I think what m- most campaigners would say is that actually, if if we're going to have a proper green agenda, if we're going to reach net zero, if we're going to decarbonize the economy, it needs to be radical. It needs to be a, a huge systemic change, not kind of little nudges that a very, very minor partner in government can can make. Yeah, and um, one final thing to talk about this week, Jack, we've had the slightly surreal sight of um, Michael Gove um, <laughs> dance, <laughs> dancing in Aber- Aberdeen. Uh, what, what did you, I know you're a regular visitor to Aberdeen, what did you what did you make of that? Were you disappointed not to be up in Aberdeen when bumping into Michael Gove on the dance floor? Um, I think it's best I reserve comment on that one, isn't it? Why? I mean, you, you, have, you do, you do. It's just one of those surreal situations, isn't it? That you see, you know, you, it pops up every now and then. A politician kind of appearing in, you know, a pretty random place um, and doing something to make people laugh. Life is um, I still wonder. Why shouldn't he have a nice dance? <laughs> exactly. No, look, look like absolutely. Um, it looks Absolutely. like he was, he was having a great time. And you sometimes wonder, you know, was it was it perhaps perhaps you know carefully planned so that he kind of looked like he was um, you know, a man of the people as such, or or who knows? But yeah, I mean, at least he was having a a great time, and it, lo- it looks like he did pay the entry fee, didn't he? Um, despite a bit of kind of dubiety over that. <laughs> I can't I can't imagine it was planned. I can imagine lots of uh, PR people in government pulling their hair out when they when they saw that Daily Record story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw um, I, a clip of uh, Michael Gove. Somebody had uh, taken some some of uh, a clip from Train Spotting where uh, Rend- perfectly. Yeah, where Rendon's on the dance floor and they'd spliced in Michael Gove in the background, and it, it just it was perfect, absolutely perfect. I saw a clip of Mr. Bean dancing, and he had the exact suit and the exact moves of Michael Gove. Yeah, he's uh, he's got he's got his own unique style. Let's uh, <laughs> put it that way. Um, so mo- moving on to um, moving on to the magazine, and um, the, the the next magazine comes out next week. But Margaret, you've been uh, you've been looking at COP twenty six and speaking to people about what might what might be achieved. Yeah, that's right. So it's two months exactly now until COP takes place in Glasgow. Um, and we're kind of looking at what what the hopes are, what the fears are for the summit this year. It's, I mean, it's obviously been put off from last year. So things that were pressing a year ago are even more pressing now, um, specifically some of the rules around the, the Paris Agreement, which was obviously signed at COP in 2015. Um there are some, well, lots of countries have made their commitments around net zero in the wake of that. That that isn't legally binding, but then there are some rules that need to be put in place. 
Um, I mean, what the thing that the thing that I, I did find really interesting was was the stuff about basically smaller countries being disenfranchised. Yeah. And you, you talk about the Pacific Islanders, I think, is the example that's used. And they've, they've somehow managed to round up a couple of Pacific Islanders living in Glasgow. My first thought on that was, why the hell would you move from the Pacific Islands to Glasgow? But yeah. interestingly... I have a feeling those people were working at one of the universities. So they, oh, right, okay. I, I think that that's what they were doing in Glasgow. But yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, the Pacific Islands, they're one of the, the places that, that's really severely affected by climate change. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they're 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 like not going to be here to have a say in in what's going on at COP because of um, COVID and the pandemic and travel restrictions, etc. Um, the, the, there's talk about the decision making parts of the conference, perhaps moving to a hybrid model where the people that can make it here will be in the room and then others can dial in. But again, that puts those people at a big disadvantage. So we're going to have all like. The European nations, which send massive delegations, they're all going to be here. They'll be in the room when the decisions are being made. And then people in the global south, Pacific Islands, places like that, they may be able to dial in, but then they have problems with power supplies, with internet connections, etc. And, and also the day and night effects, like because of time differences. So they, they'll be staying up overnight to take part in discussions here. So that that puts them at a serious disadvantage. And um, the, the organisation Stop Climate Chaos Scotland, it, it was them that organised this delegation of Pacific Islanders who are actually in Glasgow. So they, they don't need to know anything about the arguments. They don't need to know much about climate change. They basically just need to be the mouthpiece for the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the people in the Pacific Islands who... In their daytime, they can set up, they can study what we've discussed during their nighttime here, and then they can feed in to the people who are here who will go and be their advocates and their, their spokespeople at the conference. It doesn't solve anything by any means. That doesn't solve everything by any means, but it, it, it will at least ensure that they will have some kind of a voice at the conference. Uh, Louise, what, what's your sense about just how optimistic we should be about COP26? I mean, I know it's a really difficult question to answer, but... Um, there's this famous quote from John Kerry where he says, you know, basically this is the world's last best chance to solve climate change. But I can't say I've heard a huge amount of optimism, optimism coming from anyone about, about COP26. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely that feeling among, I mean, basically everyone that I've spoken to about it, that, that you know, this is the one, this is the big opportunity. If we walk away from Glasgow um, in November without having secured some sort of Glasgow agreement, then that's kind of it and we've not done enough. Um, but at the same time, I've not, yeah, I'm the same. I've not heard a lot of people actually be like, yes, I think we'll definitely come away with something. Um well, I don't know that there's a Glasgow agreement on the table. I don't think that's the point of this one. I think the point is to finalise Paris. I don't think anyone's particularly looking for a Glasgow agreement. Oh, see, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think the idea is to kind of check... Going for a Glasgow agreement. Um, I was speaking to someone mm. um, way back in, in March, and he was saying that if we don't come away with a Glasgow agreement, then mm. it will be considered a failure. Um, and that, that was one of the sort of subnational government bodies um, mm. that was saying that. So, uh, I mean, I've, I mean, there you are. There's just, it's different views on what is expected. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know, mm. 
the UK government in particular isn't really saying what a successful outcome would be just yet and that mm. could also be seen as it hedging its bets so it can say whatever happens is a success mm-hmm. but it might not necessarily be a success in how a lot of people would view it I guess yeah I mean I think the the Paris Agreement is all you know often held up as this historic agreement but the way I've heard it framed was that Basically, Paris was the easy bit. Paris was everyone agreeing that the world was in dire straits and we needed to do something. And Glasgow is the really difficult job of actually saying to people, this is what we need to do to achieve Paris. Paris was the PR, wasn't it? Everyone and that's going, to be, that's going to be really problematic. We made this like, brilliant agreement. Aren't we brilliant? Yeah. Look at us. We're, we're going to save the world. But, but actually doing it in practice is a hard bit, isn't it? And no one's, no one's doing that. Um, but I mean, you spoke to to Lana Slater, the new the new Green Minister, recently, didn't you, Chris, about that? And and she wasn't exactly optimistic either. No, um, the, the interview obviously will appear in the magazine next week. But um, yeah, Lana Slater, I wouldn't say was massively optimistic about COP, which surprised me, uh, given that given that she's a Green politician. Um, but it, it's something that you hear again and again, and and there's there's I think there's a massive kind of split in the in the climate camp about about just how we approach this issue. You know, do we approach it through um, through politics and through and is that how as individuals we have agency, or do you go down the extinction rebellion route and try and just wreak havoc? And I, I mean, I personally, I personally, uh, you know, I, I'm worried about the climate, and the more you read, the more worrying. Uh, and, and frightening it becomes, but I don't see how Extinction Rebellion will achieve anything by closing roads and, you know, making it more difficult for people to get to their work. I mean, I remember seeing something last year or maybe the year before where uh, Extinction Rebellion were, were on a tube train and where they stopped a tube train from moving. You think, look, these are people that are already using public transport and you're making it more difficult for them to... Uh, to get to get to work, so uh, I don't necessarily understand. I don't necessarily agree that that's the way forward. I mean, does anyone ever? Does anyone else have a, a view on Extinction Rebellion? I mean, I think they've certainly worked in getting stuff on to the agenda. You know, it's it's made yeah. headlines. Um, was it Extinction Rebellion that did that stunt a couple of years ago, where they chained themselves to the Scottish Parliament, or was that another climate? Sure. Anyway, that was quite successful at getting all the leaders of the parties out out to talk about it um then they stopped all the pr- the printing presses in london didn't they a couple mm, of years ago um but yeah it comes down to you know it, it, if it's i wonder how much it's doing in terms of getting public opinion on board if they're actually actually just getting in the way of people and people are going to be rolling their eyes thinking oh it's extension rebellion again or whether it is actually mm. working at getting people to talk about climate change um i think difficult. there's a bit of that I, I i do think there's a bit of that it's like mm. I suppose it's like the trade unions, isn't it? Like when they're going in for an agreement, they'll ask for the absolute world, knowing that they have a point where they will actually reach agreement. But like, I think that there is a degree of like, you have to kick up a hell of a stink to get anywhere near what, what might be needed or what, what you actually would agree to. I mean, I don't know if that's actually Extinction Rebellion strategy. But... Well, yeah, I suppose, I mean, you're mentioning, mentioning uh, the trade unions. It's similar to like strikes of the past, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if you uh, if you're a train driver and, and you go on strike, at what point do the public stop 
sympathizing with your cause you know if, if if after two weeks of not being able to get the train to work do you suddenly go do you know what i was on side with the train drivers and, and now because i can't get to work anymore they've, they've managed to alienate me yeah yeah but but the um, unions know that don't they so that they will then agree something less than what they were asking for in the first place yeah. i guess it's just all that that dance isn't it like which way it goes yeah, but Extinction Rebellion are literally asking for the earth. They, you know, it's not it's not a figurative thing. They are literally asking for the earth. And it's difficult to know how politicians, elected politicians, will be able to will be able to appease them anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um Jack, you've also been looking at climate issues for for the MAG. Who have you been speaking to? Yeah, so I spoke to Nigel Topping, who is the um, the UK government's high-level climate action champion, um, which is a bit of a tongue twister that one. Um, but yeah, he um, he was a he's a very interesting individual, actually. Kind of um, he's was appointed kind of in I think it was January twenty twenty um, for, for two um, COP cycles. To sort of drive kind of action um, among um, businesses and, and the like, um, but he's also got a connection to Scotland. He was he was born here, um, born in Glasgow, kind of lived uh, in the north, um, and he actually credits it for a lot of his um, for kind of shaping his, his passion for the environment and for the outdoors. Um, and so he kind of talked about that. He's he's quite a, a down to earth, self deprecating guy. Kind of talks about. Um, you know how he how he came to to kind of be involved in and what he's doing now, um, and how you know really he's quite he's quite brutally honest actually about the situation that we face in terms of the kind of um, the fight against climate change and you know kind of says in pretty blunt terms that we really are you know messing things up, but also kind of talks about you know that activist mindset of always remaining hopeful and he looked ahead to COP twenty six as well and he still seems you know very hopeful and positive about what can be done there and what can be achieved um, and I think he sees it as a real opportunity for you know for it to cut through you know the kind of the climate change sort of um, issue you know for it to cut through into everyday conversation you know while this is going on because I think sometimes that can be an issue and um, I don't know if that's something that you guys agree with but I, I sometimes think that you know it doesn't quite maybe, you know, you see it, politicians will talk about it, you maybe see it in the news, but I don't know if it kind of cuts through to everyone, you know, how important an issue it is for us to kind of tackle. I think unless people have been flooded or whatever, you don't think about it, do you? Like, it's all very well to see mm. images of other places that are flooded and hear about warming and all that, but unless you experience something yourself, I think that's why the reaction to the pandemic was so, people universally got on board with it because everyone was impacted. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw some polling today. I can't remember where it was. It was one of these things that popped up on Twitter, and it and it seems to suggest that the climate is now in the sort of top uh, top three issues that the electric care about. Going from basically nowhere about five ten years ago, no one really cared about it. It was a it was a sort of fringe minority interest, and it's now you know in the sort of top two or three things that, that people care about. Um, and I think that's only going to become. Uh, more the case is, is more of these sort of dramatic weather events happen. I mean, I personally, you know, um, I've always been aware of climate change, but it's only really in the last sort of few years that I've started to, to, to read about it properly and listen, you know, you listen to podcasts and 
you read about it and and it is it's really frightening just the pace that it's coming and i think um the, the thing that was worrying about the ipcc report was that we thought we had more time to deal with these things than we actually do the the extreme weather events that were predicted sort of 10 20 years in the future they seem to be coming kind of quite thick and fast they're coming quicker than even the scientists thought which is a real worry so is is nigel topping um is he's optimistic then that some sort of deal will be will be struck at cop jack i think to, he kind of talked more in general terms you know he didn't kind of really necessarily broach it um in that sense he kind of said that you know as um what what he, what he said that i quite liked was that he kind of envisages a cop where you know people are going you know home at night or they'll go they'll go to the the pubs afterwards and they'll be talking about climate change and then they'll be talking about climate change over breakfast in the morning so he thinks it's a kind of real opportunity in november in glasgow for you know the kind of um the stuff that you know the positive stuff um, that is going on you know in scotland um, in some areas to be kind of discussed and highlighted um but then also you know just the issue more generally to be kind of um you know discussed and, and debated um, i think um you know the real thing, I think, for me for COP twenty six, which is is probably going to prove important, is whether you know some of the um, is getting you know people around the table in terms of the big emitters and you know also the people that are affected really by the worst effects of climate change. That's kind of, I guess, you know, if they're able to do that, and I know there was kind of um, perhaps a bit of people were not sure whether um, everyone's able is going to be able to get there because of you know issues with vaccines and things like that or um, getting them to delegates and stuff like that. But I think it's important, you know, for for everyone to get around the table and to be able to talk about this um, as they kind of thrash out some of the issues. And Louise, you've um, you've written your sketch for the magazine uh, this week on uh, Dominic Rabb's travels. Um, and he unluckily happened to be on a beach in Crete just as a Taliban uh, who, who, according to Dominic Rabb, the Taliban surprised even themselves at how quick they managed to capture Kabul. But I was just wondering, do you think uh, we might see the Greens appearing in a sketch at some point, or, or even the issue of climate change, or is climate change just too serious an issue that you can't write a sketch about it? Uh, I mean, that's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? Um... I mean, I dare say the Greens will make an appearance at, at some point in one, but I don't know whether it will be on the topic of, of climate change, per se. Maybe um, there'll be some COP26 dancing going on. But, I mean, yeah. you, you wouldn't have necessarily thought that the, the Taliban would be uh, part of a sketch either, so who can say? Who can say? <laughs> Indeed, and Margaret's right. If we get uh, Michael Gove at COP26 on the dance floor, you never know. Mm. Uh, okay, thanks, everyone. Um, And uh, that's all for the podcast this week. Uh, We'll be back next week. Please join us then. to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall, and on this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by my colleagues Margaret Taylor, Jack Thompson, and Louise Wilson to discuss the upcoming edition of the magazine and what's been happening in the world of Scottish politics. 
First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has just finished making a statement in Parliament amid what she calls an extremely concerning rise in COVID cases. Um, Jack, the situation is uh, starting to look quite bad, isn't it, in terms of the number of cases? Yeah, and it's kind of, it's, it's felt that way, hasn't it, for the past week or, you know, past couple of weeks where we're seeing numbers of daily cases which are quite, you know, astronomical. We've seen records hit kind of quite a few times, um, cases breaching 7,000, you know, on some days. So it certainly felt like action was needed. Um, and, you know, there was speculation about whether that might be a circuit breaker, which the First Minister was kind of quick to say, you know, we're not considering a circuit breaker. Um, one of the other things yeah. though, that was kind of reported to be being considered was uh, vaccine passports. And it's just been confirmed that, um, the plan is to go ahead with, you know, a form of vaccine passports, passports which will, um, you know, have to be approved by the parliament. But, you know, given the kind of makeup of the parliament, you'd expect that to go ahead. So it looks like that's going to be the route that they're going to go down in the first instance before maybe reverting back to other restrictions. Yeah, and I mean, what what does everyone think about vaccine passports? I mean, Louise, what what, what do you think? I mean, I'm I I myself am fairly relaxed about them. I mean, I know a lot of people think that it's the beginning of the end and the start of some sort of totalitarian state. But if I was going to a gig, for example, I would like to know that, you know, most of the people in the gig, if not everyone in the gig, has been has been vaccinated. Yeah, and I think that's the choice, really, isn't it? You know, we've had a few of the reaction um, statements already coming in saying, like, from a lot of venues that will be affected, saying we don't like it, but it's better than being shut down and yeah. I, I think I'm in the same camp I mean I'm not a particular I mean I'm not particularly against the idea but you know it, it there is some arguments there about civil liberties and not wanting sort of um things like that preventing you from doing what you want to do but equally if the the alternative is going into lockdown again in winter I, I'd rather go for the the vaccine passports yeah, and I mean, Mar- Margaret, it does seem like, uh, you know, a lot of this has been blamed on schools going back, but it does seem like a lot of it when you're out and about that we've gone from a position of having quite uh, strict, severe restrictions to having no restrictions at all. And in a lot of people's minds, that has basically meant life has returned to normal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you walk around the streets and it's like there's nothing happening at all. Uh, masks don't look to be particularly the norm anymore. I mean, certainly in supermarkets or whatever, people are wearing them. But I don't think people are getting quite the dirty looks if they don't have them on that they, they would have received before for whether that was a good thing or not. But yeah, the streets are crowded, transport's crowded, and people are very much going about life as normal, which... I suppose is is a good thing in a sense because we want to get back to that, but with with the way that the numbers are, and I guess we haven't really seen the full extent of the impact of that on the health service yet. It's probably caution is probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, Jack, uh, first minister said that today that we're still not seeing uh, you know big numbers of people in intensive care, um, but. She she mentioned the figure of 10,000 cases a day and she said that if we get to 10,000 cases a day, even if a very small percentage of those end up in intensive care or end up in hospital, that's still a, a small percentage of a large number. That's still a lot of people ending up in hospital. 
Yeah, and that's kind of been, the, you know, something that she's reiterated quite a few times over the past few weeks is, you know, it doesn't kind of take a genius to figure out that a small percentage of a high number um, could still potentially be quite a high number. Um, and I think as well, you know, a lot of the kind of, you know, it still seems that the vaccines are kind of breaking that link, you know, between um, cases and serious illness. But it, it might not really be much solace for people who are in that position, you know, who become seriously ill, you know. Um, so I think there's that to, to take account of as well. When you think about the figures, there are still numbers of people albeit, you know, not particularly high, there are still people out there who are getting seriously ill. So perhaps something that we don't, you know, want to lose sight of. And I'm sure it's something that the First Minister as well is probably, you know, trying to make sure that people don't lose sight of. Um, but and it looks like hospitals are kind of generally managing, you know, at the moment, although I know um, Hamza Yousaf was saying, I think just the other day that, you know, it's with absences and things like that, we could be at a sort of perfect storm stage. So, it makes sense that, you know, it's something that they're kind of closely monitoring. Yeah, and Louise, I mean, we've got the we've got the added worry as well that as people go back to their daily lives and start to uh, mingle more and socialise more, that we could also get a, a, a quite a big um, flu surge over the summer, which is which is yet another thing for the NHS to worry about. Yeah, um, obviously, you know, flu um, for, for the, well, last year was actually relatively low and that's that's as a result of the restrictions being in place um so you know we actually saw a bit of a benefit in terms of, of flu deaths um but yeah you don't want to add add covid on on top of flu this year just incidentally i got the first train that i've got in 18 months uh well the sh first um scotland train in the last yeah. 18 months last weekend um it happened to be on the sunday which is of course is when scotrail was striking so it was the one lner service um <laughs> between sterling and edinburgh that day and it was absolutely rammed um so i had mm. my face mask on my partner had my face mask on but there was a couple around us that that didn't um and, and that just, I think, just felt, felt I think like said, insisted on wearing masks on trains, haven't they? Because the other week um, mm. I was on a train and lots of people weren't wearing them at all. But I think it was that kind of, it, it was a week of beyond zero and people didn't really know what the rules mm. were. It's like, okay, lots of rules have lifted, but Scott Rail's rules perhaps weren't all that obvious. So I, I think a lot of people had them kind of around their chins. <laughs> ready to pull yeah, people, people who wear face masks around their chins. I mean, that's uh, not not really understood. I mean, that puts you in a very difficult situation, though. If you're if you're on a bus or a train, and and somebody's not wearing a mask, then to do. You I, I wasn't sure myself. Like I was sat at a table on my own. I wasn't sure if I should have mine on or not for the duration of the journey. And then I did see oh. the next day a tweet from Scott Rail saying that their own rules specifically are that you must wear them when you're travelling. I think it's just that mixed message and people just aren't quite sure yeah, at the moment. People are still unsure. And Louise, moving away from COVID, this week we've had the two Green co-leaders uh, confirmed as junior ministers in the Scottish Government. What, what are they going to be getting up to? Um, yeah, so their positions reflect much of what was in the Green Deal. It's about active travel. It's about energy efficiency. There's a bit in there about tenant rights. Um, so that'll be, they were confirmed yesterday, and that'll be really interesting to see going forward, given that they are the first um, Green Ministers in, in the UK ever. Um, there's also, obviously, that's had... Um, 
I guess a bit of a, a negative impact on 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 them in Parliament. It means that they get a bit less cash that opposition usually gets um, to sort of well, mount mount their opposition, I guess. Um, and it also means that they won't get a question at uh, first ministers' questions as regularly. They won't get speaking slots in debates because officially they are part uh, part of government. Um, of course, they must have seen all that coming before they agreed to the deal but um, there was a lot of hay made yesterday about how uh, how they'd lost out on, on the, those important functions so do, do you think there's still a net benefit for them to, to be in government even though they lose out on all the all the stuff that they have as, as an opposition party uh, I mean it's difficult to say isn't it this uh, early on um, presumably they've weighed up their options and said actually yeah it makes more sense for us to be in government I suppose the danger here and and it's the same with any sort of party that smaller party that goes into coalition or just shy of coalition is that any positives that come of it the majority party is always going to have the more resources to claim those as wins and then they can blame the smaller party for anything that doesn't go ahead um uh, you know there's always the question of how much sway will actually the greens hold in in government um you know the junior minister positions as opposed to cabinet secretary positions is an interesting one um, and, and you know, they've had to sign up to a bunch of SNP policy, which isn't green policy, um, and you wonder where where the shifts are actually going to come in the long term. Yeah, I mean, Margaret, a lot of the, the interesting stuff is in the stuff that's left out, you know, the excluded matters, and, you know, looking at the kind of green manifesto or the Greens manifesto in years gone by, that's, it's in some of those uh, areas, you know, things like, um, getting rid of nuclear weapons, uh, you know, moving away from oil and gas in like a very quick timescale. That's that's where they're at really interesting, um, if pretty radical, and they've been kind of neutered on stuff. Well, that that's exactly the thing, isn't it? The, the, the radicalness of their of their policies, and that's it. It was interesting this week that um, the interview that Greta Thunberg gave to, to the BBC, saying that yeah, well whatever the, the, the greens are in maybe they're they're not quite as bad as the others but actually what she was saying and i think what m- most campaigners would say is that actually if, if we're going to have a proper green agenda if we're going to reach net zero if we're going to decarbonize the economy it needs to be radical it needs to be a, a huge systemic change not kind of little nudges that a very very minor partner in government can can make yeah and um one final thing to talk about this week jack we've had the slightly surreal sight of um, Michael Gove um, dance, <laughs> dancing in Aber- Aberdeen. Uh, what, what did you, I know you're a regular visitor to Aberdeen, to Aberdeen. What did you What did you make of that? Were you disappointed not to be up in Aberdeen when you bumped into Michael Gove on the dance floor? Um, oh, I think it's best I reserve <laughs> comment on that one, isn't it? <laughs> Why? I mean, you, you, have, <laughs> you do, you do, it's just one of those surreal situations, isn't it, that you see, you know, you, it pops up every now and then, a politician kind of appearing in, you know, a pretty random place um, and doing something to make people laugh. Life is um, I still wonder... Why shouldn't he have a nice dance? <laughs> exactly, no, it looks like absolutely. Um, it looks Absolutely. like he was, he was having a great time. And you sometimes wonder, you know, was it was it perhaps perhaps you know carefully planned so that he kind of looked like he was um, you know, a man of the people as such, or or who knows? But yeah, I mean, at least he was having a a great time, and it, lo- it looks like he did pay the entry fee, didn't he? Um, despite a bit of kind of dubiety over that. 
I can't. I can't imagine it was planned. I can imagine lots of uh, PR people in government pulling their hair out when they when they saw that Daily Record story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw um, I, a clip of uh, Michael Gove. Somebody had uh, taken some some of uh, a clip from Train Spotting where. Uh, Ren- perfectly. Yeah, where Ren- Renton's on the dance floor and they'd spliced in Michael Gove in the background, and it, it just it was perfect, absolutely perfect. I saw a clip of Mr. Bean dancing, and he had the exact suit and the exact moves of Michael Gove. Yeah, he's uh, he's got he's got his own unique style. Let's uh, <laughs> put it that way. Um, so mo- moving on to um, moving on to the magazine, and um, the, the the next magazine comes out next week. But Margaret, you've been uh, you've been looking at COP twenty six. And speaking to people about what might what might be achieved. Yeah, that's right. So it's two months exactly now until COP takes place in Glasgow, um, and we're kind of looking at what what the hopes are, what the fears are for the summit this year. Is I mean, it's obviously been put off from last year, so things that were pressing a year ago are even more pressing now. Um, specifically, some of the rules around the the Paris Agreement, which was obviously signed at COP in twenty fifteen. Um, there are some, well, lots of countries have made their commitments around net zero in the wake of that. That That isn't legally binding, but then there are some rules that need to be put in place. Um, I mean, what, the thing that the thing that I, I did find really interesting was, was the stuff about basically smaller countries being disenfranchised. Yeah. And you, you talk about the Pacific Islanders, I think, is the example that's used. And they, they've somehow managed to round up a couple of Pacific Islanders living in Glasgow. My first thought on that was, why the hell would you move from the Pacific Islands to Glasgow? But yeah. interestingly... I have a feeling those people were working at one of the universities. So they, oh, right, okay. I, I think that that's what they were doing in Glasgow. But yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, the Pacific Islands, they're... Uh, one of the the places that that's really severely affected by climate change. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they're 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 like not going to be here to have a say in in what's going on at COP because of um, COVID and the pandemic and travel restrictions, etc. Um, the, the, there's talk about the decision making parts of the conference, perhaps moving to a hybrid model where the people that can make it here will be in the room and then others can dial in. But again, that puts those people at a big disadvantage. So we're, we're going to have all like. The European nations, which send massive delegations, they're all going to be here. They, they'll be in the room when the decisions are being made. And then people in the global south, Pacific Islands, places like that, they may be able to dial in, but then they have problems with power supplies, with internet connections, etc. And, and also the day and night effects, like because of time differences. So they, they'll be staying up overnight to take part in discussions here. So that that puts them at a serious disadvantage. And um, the, the organisation Stop Climate Chaos Scotland, it, it was them that organised this delegation of Pacific Islanders who are actually in Glasgow. So they, they don't need to know anything about the arguments. They don't need to know much about climate change. They basically just need to be the mouthpiece for the, uh, the people in the Pacific Islands who, in their daytime, they can set up, they can study what we've discussed during their nighttime here, and then they can feed in to the people who are here who will go and be their advocates and their, their spokespeople at the conference. It doesn't solve anything by any means. That doesn't solve everything by any means, but it, it, it will at least ensure that they will have some kind of a voice at the conference. Uh, Louise, what, what's your sense about just how optimistic we should be about COP26? I mean, I know it's a really difficult question to answer, but um, 
there's this famous quote from John Kerry where he says, you know, basically this is the world's last best chance to solve climate change. But I can't say I've heard of a huge amount of optimism, optimism coming from anyone about, about COP26. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely that feeling among, I mean, basically everyone that I've spoken to about it, that, you know, this is the one, this is the big opportunity. If we walk away from Glasgow um, in November without having secured some sort of Glasgow agreement, then that's kind of it and we've not done enough. Um, But at the same time, I've not, yeah, I'm the same. I've not heard a lot of people actually be like, yes, I think we'll definitely come away with something. Yeah. well, I don't know that there's a Glasgow agreement on the table. I don't think that's the point of this one. I think the point is to finalise Paris. I don't think anyone's particularly looking for a Glasgow agreement. Oh, see, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think the idea is to kind of check... Going for a Glasgow agreement. Um, I was speaking to someone mm. um, way back in, in March, and he was saying that if we don't come away with a Glasgow agreement, then mm. it will be considered a failure. Um, and that, that was one of the sort of subnational government bodies um, mm. that was saying that. So, uh, I mean, I've, I mean, there you are. There's just, it's different views on what is expected. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and you know, mm. the UK government in particular isn't really saying what a successful outcome would be just yet. And that mm. could also be seen as it hedging its bet so it can say whatever mm. happens is a success. Mm-hmm. But it might not necessarily be a success in how a lot of people would view it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the Paris Agreement is all you know often held up as this historic agreement. But the way I've heard it framed was that basically Paris was the easy bit. Paris was everyone agreeing that the world was in dire straits and we needed to do something. And Glasgow is the really difficult job of actually saying to people, this is what we need to do to achieve Paris. Paris was the PR, wasn't it? Everyone. And that's going to be that's going to be really problematic. We made this like brilliant agreement, aren't we brilliant? Yeah. Look at us, we're, we're we're going to save the world, but but actually doing it in practice is a hard bit, isn't it? And no one's no one's doing that. Um, but I mean, you spoke to to Lana Slater, the new the new Green Minister, recently, didn't you, Chris, about that? And and she wasn't exactly optimistic either. No, um, the, the interview obviously will appear in the magazine next week. But um, yeah, Lorna Slater, I wouldn't say was massively optimistic about COP, which surprised me, uh, given that given that she's a green politician. Um, but it, it's something that you hear again and again, and, and there's there's I think there's a massive kind of split in the in the climate camp about about just how we approach this issue. You know, do we approach it through um, through politics and through, and is that how, as individuals, we have agency, or do you go down the extinction rebellion route and try and just wreak havoc? And I mean, I personally, I personally, uh, you know, I, I'm worried about the climate, and the more you read, the more worrying uh, and, and frightening it becomes. But I don't see how extinction rebellion will achieve anything by closing roads and you know, making it more difficult for people to get to their work. I mean, I remember seeing something last year or maybe the year before where uh, Extinction Rebellion were, were on a tube train and where they stopped a tube train from moving. You think, look, these are people that are already using public transport and you're making it more difficult for them to uh, to get to get to work. So I don't necessarily understand. I don't necessarily agree that that's the way forward. I mean, does anyone, ever, does anyone else have a, a view on Extinction Rebellion? I mean, I think they've certainly worked in getting stuff on 
to the agenda you know it's it's made yeah. headlines um was it extinction rebellion that did that stunt a couple of years ago where they chained themselves to the scottish parliament or was that another climate sure. anyway that was quite successful at getting all the leaders of the parties out out to talk about it um didn't they stopped all the, pr- the printing presses in london didn't they a couple mm, of years ago um but yeah it comes down to you know it, it if it's i wonder how much it's doing in terms of getting public opinion on board if they're actually actually just getting in the way of people and people are going to be rolling their eyes thinking oh it's extension rebellion again or whether it is actually mm-hmm. working at getting people to talk about climate change um i think difficult. there's a bit of that I, I i do think there's a bit of that it's like mm-hmm. i suppose it's like the trade unions isn't it like when they're going in for an agreement they'll ask for the absolute world knowing that they have a point where they will actually reach agreement but like i think that there is a degree of like you have to kick up a hell of a stink to get anywhere near what, what might be needed or what, what you actually would agree to. I mean, I don't know if that's actually Extinction Rebellion strategy. But well, yeah, I suppose, I mean, you're mentioning mentioning uh, the trade unions. It's similar to, like, strikes of the past, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if, you, uh, if you're a train driver and, and you go on strike, at what point do the public stop uh, sympathising with your cause? You know, if, if, if after two weeks of not being able to get the train to work, do you suddenly go... Do you know what? I was on side with the train drivers, and, and now because I can't get to work anymore, they've they've managed to alienate me. Yeah, yeah. But but the um, unions know that, don't they? So that they will then agree something less than what they were asking for in the first place. Yeah. I guess it's just all that that dance, isn't it? Like which way it goes? Yeah, but extinction rebellion are literally asking for the earth. They, you know, it's not it's not a figurative thing. They are literally asking for the earth. And it's difficult to know how politicians, elected politicians, will be able to will be able to appease them anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um Jack, you've also been looking at climate issues for, for the MAG. Who have you been speaking to? Yeah, so I spoke to Nigel Topping, who is the um the UK government's high level climate action champion, um, which is a Bit of a tongue twister that one, um, but yeah, he um, he was a he's a very interesting individual actually. Kind of um, he's was appointed kind of in I think it was January twenty twenty um, for, for two um, COP cycles to sort of drive kind of action um, among um, businesses and, and the like. Um, but he's also got a connection to Scotland. He was he was born here, um, born in Glasgow. Kind of lived uh, in the north, um, and he actually credits it for a lot of his um, for kind of shaping his, his passion for the environment and for the outdoors. Um, and so he kind of talked about that. He's he's quite a, a down to earth, self deprecating guy. Kind of talks about um, you know how he how he came to. To kind of be involved in, in what he's doing now, um, and how you know, really, he's quite he's quite brutally honest actually about the situation that we face in terms of the kind of um, the fight against climate change, and you know, kind of says in pretty blunt terms that we really are you know messing things up, but also kind of talks about you know that activist mindset of always remaining hopeful, and he looked ahead to COP twenty six as well, and he still seems you know very hopeful and positive about what can be done there and what can be achieved. Um, and I think he sees it as a real opportunity for, you know, for it to cut through, you know, the kind of the climate change sort of um, issue, you know, for it to cut through into everyday conversation, you know, while this is going on, because I think sometimes that can be an issue. Um, I don't know if that's something that you guys agree with, but I, I sometimes think that, you know, 
it doesn't quite maybe, you know, you see it, politicians will talk about it, you maybe see it in the news, but I don't know if it kind of cuts through to everyone, you know, how important an issue it is for us to kind of tackle. I think unless people have been flooded or whatever, you don't think about it, do you? Like, it's all very well to see Mm. images of other places that are flooded and hear about warming and all that, but unless you experience something yourself, I think that's why the reaction to the pandemic was so... People universally got on board with it because everyone was impacted. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw some polling today. I can't remember where it was. It was one of these things that popped up on Twitter, and it and it seems to suggest that the climate is now in the sort of top uh, top three issues that the electorate care about. Going from basically nowhere about five ten years ago, no one really cared about it. It was a it was a sort of fringe minority interest and it's now you know in the sort of top two or three things that that people care about um and i think that's only going to become uh more the case as as more of these sort of dramatic weather events happen i mean i personally you know um i've always been aware of climate change but it's only really in the last sort of few years that i've started to, to to read about it properly and listen you know you listen to podcasts and read about it and and it is it's really frightening just the pace that is coming and i think um the, the thing that was worrying about the ipcc report was that we thought we had more time to deal with these things than we actually do the the extreme weather events that were predicted sort of 10 20 years in the future they seem to be coming kind of quite thick and fast they're coming quicker than even the scientists thought which is a real worry so is, is nigel topping um is he's optimistic then that some sort of deal will be will be struck at Cobb, Jack? I think to, he kind of talked more in general terms. You know, he didn't kind of really necessarily broach it um, in that sense. He kind of said that you know, as um, what what he, what he said that I quite liked was that he kind of envisages a cop where you know people are going you know home at night or they'll go they'll go to the the pubs afterwards and they'll be talking about climate change and then they'll be talking about climate change over breakfast in the morning so he thinks it's a kind of real opportunity in november in glasgow for you know the kind of um the stuff that you know the positive stuff and um, that is going on you know in scotland um, in some areas to be kind of discussed and highlighted um but then also you know just the issue more generally to be kind of um you know discussed and, and debated um, i think um you know the real thing, I think, for me for COP twenty six, which is is probably going to prove important, is whether you know some of the um, is getting you know people around the table in terms of the big emitters and you know also the people that are affected really by the worst effects of climate change. That's kind of, I guess, you know, if they're able to do that, and I know there was kind of um, perhaps a bit of people were not sure whether um, everyone's able is going to be able to get there because of you know issues with vaccines and things like that or um, getting them to delegates and stuff like that. But I think it's important, you know, for for everyone to get around the table and to be able to talk about this um, as they kind of thrash out some of the issues. And Louise, you've um, you've written your sketch for the magazine uh, this week on uh, Dominic Rabb's travels. Um, and he unluckily happened to be on a beach in Crete just as a Taliban uh, who, who, according to Dominic Rabb, the Taliban surprised even themselves how quick they managed to capture Kabul. But I was just wondering, do you think uh, we might see the Greens appearing in a sketch at some point, or, or even the issue of climate change, or is climate change just too serious an issue that you can't write a sketch about it? 
I mean, that's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? Um, I mean, I dare say the Greens will make an appearance at, at some point in one, but I don't know whether it will be on the topic of, of climate change, per se. Maybe um, there'll be some COP26 dancing going on. But, I mean, yeah. you, you wouldn't have necessarily thought that the, the Taliban would be uh, part of a sketch either, so who can say? Who can say? <laughs> Indeed, and Margaret's right. If we get uh, Michael Gove at COP26 on the dance floor, you never know. Uh, okay, thanks everyone. Um, and uh, that's all for the podcast this week. Uh, we'll be back next week. Please join us then. Mm-hmm.